Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Moods and Modes, episode 27. This is Alex Skolnick, and we are going full classical today. The clip you just heard is a snippet from the 24th Caprice, a composition by one of the most celebrated violin virtuosos of all time, Italy's Niccolo Paganini. Now, Mr. Paganini, who happens to be referred to in a great classic jazz tune by singer Ella Fitzgerald called You'll Just Have to Swing It, Mr. Paganini, left the planet sometime around 1840. But the person playing that track is very much alive and well, and she's going to join us today. Her name is Yulia Ziskel. She's originally from Russia, back when it was known as the Soviet Union. And she has a very cool job playing for one of the most prestigious symphony orchestras on the planet Earth, the one and only New York Philharmonic. Wow, what a piece of music. That is the New York Philharmonic with Yulia playing in the violin section. 
And that clip directly connects with the focus of this episode, which is multi-tiered. Let me explain what I mean by that. Part of the purpose of this episode is outreach. And that clip is taken from the Philharmonic's one and only visit to Pyongyang, North Korea, something that had never happened before and is not likely to ever happen again in our lifetimes, unfortunately. The New York Philharmonic has made an unprecedented landing in North Korea. The United States and North Korea do not have formal relations, but the concert is scheduled to begin with the national anthems of both countries. There is no official word on whether North Korean leader Kim Jong-il will attend the event. Wow. Now that's got to be the ultimate example of classical music outreach. We're going to be doing it on a much smaller, less socially significant scale, but hopefully worthwhile nonetheless. This whole concept of doing this episode began when I was reached out to by a representative from WQXR, one of our public radio stations here in the city, New York's Classical, which I consider to be the finest classical station. Then again, I live in New York, so admittedly, I'm a bit biased. Regardless, it was nice to hear from this representative. His name is Matt Abramovitz, and find out that he's not only aware of me and my music, but is a listener of the podcast. And as a specialist in outreach for QXR was wondering if it might be possible to do some type of collaboration. And we discussed the possibility of me doing an episode for non-regular listeners of classical music. And I assume that's most of you. Maybe there are some classical pieces that you like. Maybe you turn on classical radio once in a while to unwind, but you're not immersed in it. And I thought it might be interesting to have a conversation with somebody who is immersed in classical at the highest level, yet who can also talk about other styles of music. And you'll see why Yulia Ziskel is the perfect person with whom to try out this idea. She has a really interesting story herself. She has some incredible insight into one of the greatest orchestras in the world. And she's damn good. This is not my opinion. This is a fact. A musician can sell a million albums. Does that mean they're good? No. A musician can win a Grammy. Does that mean they're good? No. A musician can be on a list of great players, win readers or critics polls, or be on the cover of lots of magazines. Does that mean they're good? Absolutely not. Of course, there are many great musicians who fit the above descriptions, and chances are they are good, but it's not a guarantee. But if you're good enough to be accepted by the New York Philharmonic, and I'm sure that's true of the Berlin Philharmonic, the LA Philharmonic, the London Symphony Orchestra, and any other number of great symphonies around the world, well, you've not only reached black belt level just by being invited to audition, so high are the qualifications, but you have to beat hundreds who are at that level. And these are blind auditions. They don't know who's trying out. You can't be the conductor's cousin, there are no legacy admissions like at Ivy League universities. It doesn't matter if your family made a huge donation. All of which is a long way of saying that the vetting process for orchestras, such as the New York Philharmonic, which is done by a sizable committee of people who have gone through that same process, is a rare but concrete example of evidence-based proof of quality musicianship. So once again, to reiterate, this is a multi-tiered episode with several purposes. One purpose, of course, is simply to get to know this excellent musician, much like we've had other fine players on the program. However, this is a first time for us, as we have not talked to anybody who plays the violin. We have not had anybody from the classical world, let alone at such a high level. And this is also an episode instigated by WQXR, New York's classical station. Now, there's been one small wrinkle there. Our friend Matt Abramovetz, in the time since we started communicating, got an amazing opportunity to become president of New England Public Media. So he is relocating and changing jobs. 
We hope to continue this as a collaboration with QXR. Either way, I'm excited to do more classical episodes. I had a lot of fun with this. And we congratulate Matt on his new position at NBEPM. And just a couple more things before we bring in Yulia Ziskel. I want to briefly touch upon my relationship with classical music. It's always been as an appreciative listener rather than a performer. The main reason for this is that the guitar in classical music is a completely different discipline than the guitar in rock and roll, and the traditional jazz guitar had more in common than the nylon string classical guitar. And it just felt like I'd be able to use more of what I'd already developed in rock if I used jazz guitar as my point of expansion rather than classical guitar. Regardless, one of my earliest influences and still one of my favorites in hard rock was the late great Randy Rhodes, who is a classical guitar enthusiast who even took lessons from classical guitar players while he was on the road with Ozzy Osbourne. I later found out that Randy Rhodes was inspired by a classical composer from Cuba, best known for his compositions for guitar, Leo Brower. Not too long ago, I did an episode of this podcast called Borrowed Music. I can't remember if this was mentioned or this example was played, but it's probably safe to say that that piece inspired this introduction of Diary of a Madman by Ozzy Osbourne as played by Randy Rhodes. Now, I had no idea. I thought Leo Brower was a long-ago composer, but it turns out he composed those pieces in the 70s, and he's still alive. Apparently, he toured right before the pandemic, including in the United States, and he has some recent work that's quite good. This is his guitar concerto with a full symphony orchestra from just a few years ago. So one final purpose of this episode is to alert you to music like that, which you might not be aware of, the Brower Guitar Concerto, which is just one example. And we began with Yulia playing a bit of Paganini. Now, some of you are probably familiar with Paganini for the same reason I got familiar with Paganini, which is uh, Yngwie Malmsteen, the original shred guitarist from Sweden. I haven't heard that in years. Okay, so listening back, I have to admit, the guitar playing holds up. That's from Yngwie's first solo album, Rising Force, and it's amazing what he did at the time. He was in his early 20s. It really sounds like Paganini. Nobody was doing that back then. As far as the music itself, um, I have to admit, it's like so bombastic and over the top, and the lyrical themes and imagery, it just kind of reminds me of like a hard rock version of Fire Saga, the Will Ferrell Eurovision spoof. (laughs) I'm sorry. Anyway, henceforth, you will not hear classically inspired music. You will hear actual classical music, and you'll see Yulia is a great guide for this. We'll be doing most of our listening and discussing specific classical pieces in the second half of the episode. The first half focuses more on her upbringing in Soviet Russia, the fact that she was a huge fan of the Scorpions, yes, Deep Purple, and Shh, Bon Jovi. 
And finally, I should just mention that a week before this chat, I went to go hear her with the New York Philharmonic and sat behind the orchestra. It was amazing. This was at Jazz at Lincoln Center because the regular concert venue is under renovation. Anyway, I recommend the experience for anybody at any venue. So here, without further ado, my conversation with Yulia Ziskel. So I saw you at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Yep. Which I guess is unusual, right? This is one of our two homes this year. So we're, uh-huh. we're slightly homeless, but not entirely. So we're there at the Rose Theater or we're at Alice Sally Hall, which is uh-huh. this week, which is Lincoln Center campus, which is very convenient because we can, you know, see the sure. <laughs> renovation going on across the street. Yes. How's the renovation going? Apparently it's all on time and uh-huh. it looked, well, I haven't been inside. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to go inside. There were a couple of tours and I was not able to attend mm-hmm. and it was pretty mind blowing what was going on. I saw some of the pictures. So mm-hmm. there, you know, it's full blast. So it's huge renovations going on. Huge it? renovations. Yes. But outside of the hole has to remain intact, uh-huh. which I think is more difficult than starting from scratch. And mm-hmm. yet inside, the whole is going to look completely or very different than mm-hmm. what it was. Mm-hmm. And originally we were not supposed to move out for such an extensive period of time. We were going to be kind of in and out of the hole, which was yeah. going to make the renovation much longer mm. and much more costly. Mm. But because we weren't playing for, I think, full 14 months at all, they decided to proceed with renovations and it's going to be completed much sooner than expected. So there's good news there. Okay. That's a silver lining. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's supposed to be opening in October this year. So before that, have you always played at that location? We would have occasional run out to Carnegie or we would do run outs, you know, maybe to New York, New Jersey, you know, but those are run outs. Bulk of the program would be at the whole outside of tours and little run outs. Yeah. <laughs> well, normally how many tours are there in a year? How many? What's the percentage of road dates versus home gigs? I would say it adds up to maybe two months out of a year. Uh-huh. And it's never more than two and a half weeks at a time. So, uh-huh. you know, that's when the normal tour is. The residences are usually a week to maybe 10 days or so. Uh-huh. All depends where we go, how far we go, how many days we need to recuperate before we start uh-huh. playing. So all that goes into account. But I personally love traveling and being uh-huh. originally from Soviet Russia, I always considered it a great luxury to travel mm-hmm. abroad. So I try mm-hmm. to take in as much as I can when I travel. Yeah. We should talk about that growing up in Soviet Russia. Yeah. How old were you when you emigrated? I was 17, almost 18. Oh, okay. So I was at a, so you, it, you have memories, very clear memories. It's not like you were a little child. You were practically an adult. I have memories. I have lifelong friends. Some are still there. Some are here. I was very lucky, you know, and it was an interesting childhood, which I think I didn't realize that it was Mm. interesting until I lived here for a little while, you know, to Mm. compare how different childhood of children who grow up here is. Mm. But I can't say that it was an unhappy childhood, but I also was in a very enclosed environment. I was in a special music school for gifted kids. Mm-hmm. So everybody was going to be a musician or almost everybody, you know, mm-hmm. unless somebody rebelled and right. some did. <laughs> oh, interesting. But generally we had all common goal. And I think that really was kind of a special place to grow up rather yeah. than just go to regular school. At least that's how I feel. So you say you went to a gifted school. It was special music school uh. for gifted children. And there are some phenomenal artists that went through that school before Mm me who became huge names in the music Mm -hmm. in the classical music world not necessarily classical music world either actually in some of the pop world and rock world in russia so what was the career track at that time if so if you're at this school for gifted musicians at saint petersburg is the idea to train for the orchestra in saint petersburg like had you not emigrated do you think that's what would have happened Yes, most Mm. probably, you know, I trained there. I had amazing teachers. I think had we not immigrated, I would have 
was seeking a career either as an orchestra musician or maybe a solo career there. Mm -hmm. I was starting to perform quite a bit, you know, mm -hmm. before we left. And usually people went on either to Moscow Conservatory or St. Petersburg Conservatory, you know, and finished there and then yeah. find career paths. It's funny that a lot of my classmates or around my class left and went to the West, to Europe, mm. you know, Germany, to Switzerland, you know, mm. England, you name it. Mm. Many came here to the States. Some stayed. Things have changed extremely there, I think, in terms of classical music, you know, in, mm. a, in terms of career path as a musician. Did you have a family of musicians that put a violin in your hand as soon as possible? Or was it something you on your own instigated? I was a weird one because huh. I, I grew up in the family of engineers. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so I don't have any musicians in my family. Oh, amazing. I, the legend says that I started singing before I started talking. Uh-huh. And uh -huh. I could tell what I was singing. So they could recognize the song. So I guess uh -huh. I had good ears. Um, oh, that's so And in Russia, there was this, in Soviet Russia, there was this phenomenon called the communal apartments. Uh -huh. Basically, after the revolution, they would take this luxurious four or five bedroom apartments in the city. Uh -huh. and they uh -huh. would split it between four or five or more families. So each family would have a room <laughs> and they would share the bathroom and the kitchen. So you oh, can wow. imagine the conditions. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Sounds like being on tour a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's <laughs> <laughs> that never ends, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. There's no going back. My grandmother occupied one of the rooms in yeah. such apartment, and her next-door neighbor had children who took violin lessons. So she heard me sing. Uh -huh. She showed me to this teacher, violin teacher, who in the end started me when I was ripe old age of four years old. Wow. Hmm. And I proceeded to study with her for the following, I would say, almost 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Until she immigrated, and she is now one of the hottest teachers in Cleveland uh, Institute for, uh, it's a pre-college division. So, oh, amazing, amazing. Wow, yeah. wow. I had another amazing teacher after she left, uh -huh. who I think basically taught me how to perform and how to mm -hmm. be myself. Mm -hmm. That was different, you know, mm -hmm. it's a different kind of education. Mm -hmm. And it came at a perfect age because I was 14 at that point and I needed to be on stage and mm -hmm. learn how to deal with nerves and, mm -hmm. but also learn how to think for myself mm -hmm. and develop taste and develop choices mm -hmm. because the repertoire that we play is more standard. You know, mm -hmm. I don't compose, unfortunately, some people do. Mm -hmm. So I perform the repertoire that's been written. So I have to make it my own. Yeah, well, that's your specialty is interpretation. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So actually, it's kind of lucky in a way that you're in this communal situation and somebody recognized your talent. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, it's interesting because in Russia, I mean, there are a few silver linings that were back in that mm -hmm. life. One of them, all the kids got some kind of music education. Uh -huh. I started hmm. actually on violin and piano because most kids played piano they were free of charge there were little music schools all over the city you'd mm -hmm. just sign up and you would go for lessons and most kids played mm -hmm. so i would have probably got some kind of education but maybe i would have gone that way or it wouldn't have been as intense sure or nobody would have thought of the violin you know mm -hmm. things like mm -hmm. that <laughs> yeah why the violin was that something about it just, that just, yeah the neighbor happened to take her kids to the violin uh -huh. So it's like, let's That's try hard. violin, and you were yep. just... However, I have, however, these vague memories, like a uh -huh. spot memories, of asking my parents for the violin. I'm thinking how much I liked it, and I don't know where that came from. Maybe okay. just watching the performance stage, I don't know. Something mm -hmm. about the violin. And mm -hmm. I remember the moment they bought it for me. I remember the box. Mm -hmm. I remember that little violin, and us mm -hmm. driving from the store with that mm -hmm. little box in the backseat. That I remember somehow. I guess maybe somewhere in my subconscious I knew how monumental that moment was. Yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's very cool. Yeah. I had a sort of similar situation. I'm not a family of musicians. It's interesting to meet somebody at your level that didn't come from a musical family. But, you know, my, my parents always loved classical music. My mom also, she played piano, you know, because she was one of those kids, of course. She took piano, she played right. it. But, yeah, they were not musicians. How old were you when you started? About 10. Okay. So you really knew what you were doing at 10 and what you wanted. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I had started on piano a couple of years before and had wrestled with it. It wasn't a great experience with the teacher and I'd given it up. But then when I, it was like a couple of years later when I started playing guitar, I was determined. I'm like, <laughs> at the very least, I'm not going to give up this instrument. I don't know how good I'm going to, and I think just having that extra determination at an early age certainly helped me get where I got. That's fantastic. It's funny. I was just, you know, as we were, as I was preparing for this, I was listening to your solos. It's, uh, they're absolutely incredible. Just oh, absolutely love it. That's amazing to hear from you because I, you know, look at what you do. And you're I, an incredible, incredible musician. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> I, you. I know you're playing, I'm, but yet, yeah. you know, I just wanted to refresh my memory. No, it's great to hear because I consider what you do like this is high art. <laughs> You know, and I sometimes, you know, with, uh, and, and, you know, I know what I do is art, but, you know, you just look, look at the masters, the classical masters, and, you know, you're this great interpreter of that. So that it's great. It's, anyway, thank you. That's really nice. Thank you. But I have yeah. to say, the uh, level of improvisation and just mm. the clarity and the phrasing and how easy you make it sound, it's really just absolutely incredible. Again, yeah. I can't improvise, but I yeah. did take a jazz class when I started yeah. dating my husband back in college. And I'm jumping in for one moment. There will be occasional quick commentaries, just so you know, in case you're new to the podcast. Some people love it. Some people don't like it. I hear about it online. But anyway, quick commentary here. Yulia's husband is Joe Denenzone, an old friend. And we go back quite a ways. He was one of the first people I played with in New York. He's a fine electric violinist and acoustic violinist primarily jazz rock, and uh, he's the reason I know Yulia Ziskel. And it was kind of a life-changing moment because as I was taking this class, I felt much freer on stage because mm -hmm. I thought, oh, well, if I forget something, I'll just improvise. You know, it was suddenly a completely different level of nerves for a little while. Oh, wow. Well, I felt that yeah. I could actually do that. <laughs> yeah, so you got something out of it, yeah. For sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because when I studied Baroque counterpoint at one point, I don't know what on earth I'll do with this, but mm -hmm. it applies. You know, when you get into chords in jazz and not just jazz, but just, you know, rich guitar chords and voice leading and some of these rules, yeah, you're not, we're not going to observe them the way Bach observed them. But you have to analyze all the thought. It is so difficult. You know, you have to analyze these chords within a second. Yeah, it's good to study, you know, not using parallel fifths. Even though my main, you know, the type of music that, you know, really got me where I emerged playing is all based on parallel fifths. Parallel fifth. <laughs> the power chord, that's what that is, <laughs> it's, which is kind of funny. While we're on the subject of rock music. So I know you were into rock while you were still in the Soviet Union. Yes. So explain that, because that might surprise a lot of people. It was hard to get records. And you know, I was growing up in the 80s. So uh -huh. I think I came age in the late 80s when I've discovered it. And there would be this bootleg tapes of horrible quality that started surfacing. I mean, there were some things mm -hmm. that, you know, were... On LPs, for example, mm -hmm. my brother had this LP of Deep Purple. I think that was the first exposure of some greatest hits, mm -hmm. which I found very interesting. But then somebody gave me an LP. That was like my first, <laughs> my first exposure, I guess, because it was my own. And I didn't mm -hmm. know what that was. But somebody gave me for birthday, Bon Jovi, New Jersey. <laughs> Little did I know I would be living in New Jersey now. I was about to say. Yeah, that seems so <laughs> prophetic as a current New Jersey resident. <laughs> uh, and I remember putting it on, and I loved it purple, but this, I think the quality also of the record was better than the like what was in the 70s. So I kind of put it on, and I remember my hair stood up on my head, you know? Hmm. I wasn't sure what to think of it, but somehow I think by day three, hmm. I thought it was amazing. I was done, you know, I was in it. 
And at first, I think I started with more commercial records. I love the Scorpions. They were actually the first band that came to Russia during during those years. That's a big story. That's still a big story. That's still a story. They did great. And I was a big fan. Then came, I think, Extreme. But this little tape started flooding. They would have these little stands where you could pay a little money. It was kind of like a video exchange, but they would have audio tape. Mm-hmm. You could pay a little money and you could rent them and listen to them. And I would rent them. And luckily, I actually had the equipment, so I would copy these. Mm. And then I would keep them. And they were horrible quality. But I was just, I was obsessed with these records. Mm-hmm. First of all, the freedom, the different harmonies, just the different experience, the fullness of the sound, the color, just mm. everything was just right, you know, to, speaking to me. But also, I don't know why I felt... It helped me go on stage mm. with less fear for videos that started surfacing of the concerts. Mm. And I would watch them and seeing how free you guys are, you know, in your world. Right. We're not seated and following a conductor. We're like all over the place. Yes. And also performing for these giant audiences without skipping a beat. And if yeah. anything happens turning little mistakes into opportunities Mm -hmm. that just really somehow helped me in Mm -hmm. an amazing way. Yeah, that's so true. And every, you know, I think as you become a more professional too, you notice that more and more. Yes. Then when we came here and, you know, there was everything and anything in the world. And then I met my now husband who exposed me to progressive rock, Mm -hmm. which I mean, it was there in Russia, too, but I think I just wasn't mature enough yet. And there was no, again, there were no means to get these records. Mm -hmm. So I've discovered Steve Vai. I discovered Dream Theater, Rush, uh, incredible guitar playing, Mm -hmm. the sound. It seems like you're very drawn to sound quality, too. Yes, actually. You know, and it's funny. I'm drawn to sound quality of the guitarists. It's interesting. Like. Me, the pedestal, like Eddie Van Halen, mm-hmm. that's like the Stradivarius of sound yeah. for me, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. As a string player, I'm always looking for color in the yeah. sound, especially in the other string players. And I'm dealing with the string players right there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know who else? Nuno Betancourt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a great sound. Yeah. yeah. Great talent. Yeah, you mentioned hearing Bon Jovi. And liking it better than Deep Purple. Like, I, there's certain circles, musical circles, I could never say that. That would be, like, offensive because Bon Jovi's considered so commercial. But I understand what you're saying because those Deep Purple records, as great as the playing is, it was, all, like, primitive. It was like comparing, you know, records from the 50s or 60s to the 70s versus, you know, the early 70s versus the 80s like the technology had come so far exactly and don't forget also you know i suddenly had lp versus yeah. these bootleg recordings who knows how many times copied on tape yeah and i'll yeah. tell you i mean off the record now you know i never listened to bon jovi but i still listen to deep purple ah there we go okay <laughs> you have changed yeah. things have progressed and things are different yeah you were also the age for bon jovi at that time it just it just happened to fall into my lap. Yeah, and they're great songs. I mean, they're anthems. Yeah, and if yes, I can totally understand it. Yeah. So I love them. I mm-hmm. love that. I love many different things. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's me again. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with this fine musician, fun person, Yulia Ziskel. As mentioned earlier in the second half, we're going to get into more music and talk about specific pieces. So we usually do a short break right around this time on or around the half hour point. Not much housekeeping to report. I decided to stop promoting shows because they're so uncertain. So hopefully that changes when things get back to normal, quote unquote, whatever that is. And just a few words in memory of we lost the great Joe DiOrio. If you go back a couple episodes, there was a tribute episode to him that he was supposed to take part in, but he was going through health issues at the time. Sadly, the health issues got the better of him, even though it was thought that he was turning the corner. Rest in peace, 
And also John Zazula, better known as Johnny Z. You can read about him. Most of you probably know he discovered a band that was little known out of small pockets of California called Metallica and started Megaforce Records to sign them. Ended up working with bands Anthrax, my own band, Testament, too many more to name. So rest in peace, Johnny Z and Joe DiOrio. Well, Deep Purple does have some classical qualities, too. Absolutely. Listen to, right, Highway Star, there's there's an interlude there that's with these arpeggios. That was one of the first songs I heard, actually, ever. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's totally classical, right? That totally relates to class. That part with the triads, the little, 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 little. Okay, so there we have a definite intersection of rock and classical. Rock music that has, you know, classical influence with definitely John Lord as well. Yes. As Richie Blackman, right? He definitely had, he brought some of that. We should talk about classical pieces that might be interesting to rock fans that may not be obvious ones. Mm-hmm. We've been going back and forth about this. We've had some talks about this. For some time, yes. Yes. There are many. There are so yeah. many. So what are the, like, the first ones that come to mind for you? You know, it's interesting. As we were going back and forth, I've been realizing more and more that there was a lot of Russian composers that mm-hmm. somehow have succeeded in eliciting that. You know, like Mussorgsky. He said that's a typical, right? Stravinsky. Yes. Yeah. Akovi and Prokofiev music. Yeah. And Shostakovich. I mean, these are not like obscure composers either. No, but not at all. You can find parts that are pretty intense. I think I sent you this one Shostakovich string quartet movement. And I'm like, li- yes. listen to that. That's heavy. It is heavy. The second yeah. movement, absolutely. It's a scary piece. anybody is interested in hearing the second movement of Prokofiev Fifth Symphony, it's Mm. pretty intense too. Stravinsky Firebird. Yeah, Firebird Suite is amazing. I know Zappa was a big fan of that. Yeah. He cited that often. And of course, Mussorgsky Pictures is quite obvious. Yeah, it, uh, it was covered by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me jump in just to clarify a couple things. These last two clips you heard were recordings of the New York Philharmonic. However, it was long before Yulia's time. The conductor was one Leonard Bernstein. And before that, a current ensemble, the Keller Quartet. That's out on the great label ECM Records, by the way. And... All of these will be available on our episode playlist. As far as the piece we were just discussing, pictures at an exhibition, here's a quick clip of that played by Montreal's fine symphony, the Orchestre du Montréal. And as mentioned, the legendary prog rock ensemble Emerson, Lake, and Palmer did a medley of those movements. And let's not forget that Mazursky was a composer many of us were introduced to through the Walt Disney classic Fantasia. It's a very heavy piece of music, in case you forgot. This is by the Berlin Philharmonic. 
wrote Romeo and Juliet ballet. Mm -hmm. And right off the top of my head, I can think of two movements, which are pretty hard rock slash heavy metal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Which one? Sweet, actually. So it's much easier to find. The uh -huh. one that's more famous is the Montagues and Capulets. That's one of the movements. Mm -hmm. The other one is Death of Tibalb. If anybody wants to find them on YouTube, I'm sure they're going to have no trouble finding those movements and hear what, exactly what I'm talking about. There are some elements of Mahler symphony, some movements. Oh, Mahler, yes. Fantastic. And I'm so proud to be part of the orchestra where he was a music director. So when I play that music and I'm thinking that this was written for this orchestra. Oh, so he was the director of New York Philharmonic. He was a music wow. director of the New York Philharmonic, yes, at the turn wow. of the century. That's amazing. Absolutely. Just as an example, right off the top of my head, the mm -hmm. last movement of the seventh symphony, mm -hmm. the finale, it starts with this huge timpani solo and it's really kind of this marching theme. It's really phenomenal and very heavy sounding. I don't think I've mentioned this one yet. I think it's by Verdi. Okay. I'll have to send it over. Mesa de Requiem. Oh, gosh, yes. Exactly the movement you're thinking You know exactly of. which, right. It's just yes. one movement. <laughs> <laughs> but, whoa. That's handy. Yep. It's like power chord city. With know? a bass drum, right? Yeah, yeah. Now this one, there's the other vocal tune is Carmina Burana by Aura. Yeah. Although that one, I have to confess, I played that for years with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra that did this whole arrangement. <laughs> and it was all built around this fire and all these <laughs> bells and whistles. So it's hard for me to listen to that and not feel like I'm back on that stage, but. If no, anybody's no, no, not familiar with that, then it's a great one. It's a great piece, absolutely. I think it's a little more, just like I said, Bon Jovi is a little more commercial. This is also a little bit more commercial for me. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, good point. Bartok is someone we, we've talked oh, about. Oh, yes. Discussed the Concerto for Orchestra, Music for String Percussion and, and Celeste. Celesta. Fantastic. And, but if anybody is a fan of the movie Shining, some of oh. the previous moments for sure oh okay okay so it's not the, like the theme music right because i think the theme is pandoresky all right allow me to interrupt and elaborate on what i'm getting at so the music i'm thinking of as the theme quote unquote for the film by stanley kubrick the shining is not exactly a theme in the sense of a hummable melody like most other films, but rather it consists of highly dissonant combinations of notes known as tone clusters as found in very modern classical music or avant-garde music. Now, the composer is Christoph Penderecki. I believe that's how you pronounce his name, even though it looks like Penderecki. If I am mispronouncing it, let me hear from you. I'm sure I'll hear from someone. And he's considered one of Poland's greatest composers. And he was a living composer until March of 2020. I feel terrible. I did not know he passed away. But in my defense, and probably many others as well, there's probably a lot of things that happened in March of 2020 that were overshadowed by the entire world shutting down in the wake of an impending global crisis for which we are still not out of. Point being... Penderecki has some things in common with Stravinsky, who is considered a big influence, and he also had a riot at one of his concerts. 
And the reason I think of his compositions as most closely associated with being a theme, quote-unquote, for The Shining is that there are about a half a dozen of his pieces used in the score, as well as pieces by Gordon Leggetti and, of course, Bartok, which fits right in. Here's a little bit of Penderecki's music. That's called The Dream of Jacob, and if that makes you picture a deranged Jack Nicholson, that is no coincidence. And here's a little bit of Bartok, the music for strings, percussion, and Celesta. Disturbing pieces. Disturbing, absolutely. Yeah, and then of Holst, the planets, of course. True. Which has been sort of adopted in rock and roll, at least the Mars movement. Mm-hmm. Yep, I was just going to say that. And this is just Alex again. Isn't it interesting? That piece was written in 1916. Yeah, for me, it brings to mind space movies. Why is that? Well, about 60 years later, you had a space movie that had this music. Isn't that interesting? John Williams' Imperial March from Star Wars is in the same key, and it sounds like very similar instrumentation as the orchestral suite written by Gustav Holtz a half century earlier. And of course, who could forget this borrowing of that movement of Holtz Planets suite known as Mars Bringer of War. That still sounds amazing. Of course, that is Metallica's cover of Am I Evil by Diamond Head, which borrows from Holst's Planet Suite. And it's kind of crazy to think that it's been almost 40 years since that came out, which is not that far from the amount of time between Holst's Planet Suite and John Williams borrowing that for Star Wars. Crazy. And now back to our conversation here. Yulia and I have switched topics to discuss her discovery of rock music as a young teenager in Soviet Russia and using that as a tool to learn English. It's a really bizarre situation right now because now I'm fluent. And yeah, sometimes you're totally fluent. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this is a song I haven't heard since before I arrived. And it's a really bizarre feeling because suddenly the words that basically were porridge suddenly fall into words that you understand and it's the most bizarre feeling mm. listening to the songs and actually understanding the lyrics because for mm-hmm. me all this stuff it was the music if the music touched me mm-hmm. there it was i'm embarrassed maybe to say i never ever listened to russian pop or rock groups because for me there was not enough musical value mm-hmm. i'm not realizing they had the most amazing lyrics mm. but i think i just was not into it back then you know so I felt like the Western bands were much more interesting musically, you know, and as I expanded my horizons and I got more into progressive rock and started listening to more different bands that just, again, I never paid much attention to lyrics because I simply couldn't understand them. I didn't pay attention to the lyrics either, despite mm-hmm. speaking the language, just because mm-hmm. it was part of the music. It was part of the, the melody. I paid attention to the choruses, of course. You know, rock you like a hurricane. Okay. Yep. You know what I mean? But <laughs> but the rest of it, I just I just heard melodies, you know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But then lines like, you know, the bitch is hungry, she needs her. Yes, that's right. <laughs> like, right. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, were you still there when the scorpions came? Yes. Did you attend that? You could get a foot in the door, but also uh-huh. you those rock concerts were not entirely 
safe mm. because I think that in Russia they quite knew how to handle large crowds. Right, so it was it such was, a new thing. Yeah, so it was simply dangerous because you could get stepped on. You know, it's just too mm-hmm. crowded. They didn't know how to control such crowds. So I remember my parents would not really allow me to see them. So my first Scorpions experience was already here in the States. It's kind of bizarre that you know, they were the ones to you know, go beyond the uh, Soviet borders. You know, it's, That's it was, true. It wasn't Springsteen. And it happened just when the mm-hmm. wall came down. So, you know, and it was Germany, the German band. I'm wondering if there was a connection so You know, there. there's a whole podcast about it. No. You have to hear this. It's actually one of my favorite podcasts. Oh. And it's just me again. The next few minutes consist entirely of me describing in detail to Yulia this podcast that I'm a fan of. So I'll skip that content. But for those interested, uh, the podcast is called Wind of Change. It's put out by Crooked Media. It's hosted by Patrick Rad and Keefe. And it involves the Scorpions, the fall of the Soviet Union, and the CIA. No kidding. Sounds too good to be true. It's really good. Check it out. It was a huge deal. So you weren't there, but you were probably affected. By I watched it, right? it on TV. I watched it with my mom, actually. Yeah, that was a very special moment because, again, we had no access to this, especially to live mm-hmm. music like this. So, first of all, you probably couldn't get tickets if you tried. <laughs> mm-hmm. You had to be very experienced. Even though it was massive, right? It was like in the soccer stadium. Right? Yes. Yep, exactly. But also, I mean, I was what. 14, 15 at the most, probably. Right. There would be no way that anybody would allow me to go to a concert like that. You know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was playing in the New York Philharmonic, something you imagined when you were young, or just is that something where the, the opportunity came and you just... It's funny. I guess with our jobs, you have to be at the right place at the right time and you have to take many auditions, but I was lucky. I was already in New York. I was actually in New Jersey Symphony. Mm-hmm. I was in New Jersey Symphony when this audition opened up. There's a newspaper in the union. I'm sure you're a union member as well. And they announced the jobs. Mm-hmm. And so you, you know, kind of skim through the newspaper. And um, if you see something interesting, you send your resume. Yeah, we're not unionized. In, <laughs> yes, you're not. You know what I mean? It's, it's interesting. And outside of like Broadway mm-hmm. and orchestras, the unions, there really isn't a, a purpose for them. It's too I bad. I kind of <laughs> wish we did have unions. And, <laughs> Seven hour rehearsals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. I practice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I see the purpose. That's how you keep tabs. So I guess there's tenured players, and then it's pretty rare that there's an opening. Uh, that... Well, it's not pretty rare oh. because people do retire, you right. know, or people yeah. move. But I think for the winds, for the brass, for percussion, for timpani, those positions open much more rare. All right than for strings, just because there are more of us. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, if there's not a worthy candidate, then we don't fill those spots. So we have mm-hmm. to hold the audition again. It's a very tricky and very kind of grueling and excruciating process because it's like a competition. Mm-hmm. You have to three times in order to basically be in the finals. And usually in the first round, those resumes... I mean, at this point, I've been on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been on the jury, on the committee uh-huh. to select a candidate. And of course, I've played, you know. And it was mind-boggling for me to learn that usually about three to 400 resumes, at least for the violins, are submitted for one position. Oh, wow. Did you know that at the time you auditioned? I kind of did. But then when you actually go through the process, you kind of realize how many it is because yeah. then you'll to just about everybody who show, either shows up or sends a tape. Right. So that first round takes a good two weeks or so. We stay after our rehearsals and mm-hmm. we listen and listen and listen for hours. Mm. 
and there's live wow. auditions. So we go on stage and we listen for hours, you wow. know, two to three weeks probably to narrow it down to the semifinal round, which is a second round. And there we usually end up with, I don't know, on average 15 to 20 people from 300. And then from that round, we usually narrow it down to sometimes nobody or one to maybe about seven people or so. And then that pool of people has to play again and sometimes more than one. Wow. And then after that, they have to do a two-week trial, those uh-huh. who are remaining, that one or two people, however many op- openings we have. They have to do a two-week trial with the orchestra before being offered a job to see how they fit. So it's a pretty grueling process. So these are really highly coveted positions where you have to ace out a lot of folks. Yes, absolutely. Wow. And it's tricky, you know, because everybody's level of playing is generally pretty high and excellent. And so it's sometimes hard to determine. Yeah, there are some obvious choices if somebody comes in and it's not a good day or, you know, they're not prepared. But in Uh general, it's tough. And contrary to what sometimes we hear is like, oh, they didn't hire anyone. We want to hire. Mm -hmm. We've been sitting there for a month. We really want to hire. Mm -hmm. Just we need to hire somebody worthy who we, you know, and who also fits our organization Mm -hmm. and who we want to work with and who we want to sit next to. Mm -hmm. It's like getting somebody for your band. It's a marriage. It's a family. I'm sure you've been in these situations too. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes they can be a great player, but it can be very difficult. What we do is very subjective. So we have to be on the same page about that too. So you have to find somebody that's going to work with all these people. How many people are in the orchestra? I'm afraid to say because some people retired. There uh-huh. was a moment it was 106. I think it's a little uh-huh. less because you retired, but it's around 100. So approximately 100. So, yeah. Yeah. And it probably depends on the piece too, right? Some pieces are fully orchestrated. Right. I'm talking about yeah. the full members. Yes, absolutely. And they're uh, blind auditions, right? You don't yes. know what they look like, you don't know their appearance, gender. No clue. More than that, they make sure to put a carpet on the walkway where they walk. So in case somebody wears heels, we can't tell if it's a man or a woman. Oh, wow. There's like a carpet walkway so that everything is completely quiet. So we can't tell anything. Wow. Super final. Basically, when we're left with, I don't know, two, three, four people, they do put the screen down. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that might be changing too and going to fully blind soon enough. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, purely sound-based. And then you have to see if somebody that gets along with everybody else. Yeah, yeah. so then then it's a trial, a couple of weeks or so, that they have to come and try. And, you know, the orchestra has a certain tradition of playing. This is another interesting thing, because sometimes somebody might not get hired by our orchestra, but will get hired by another great orchestra. Mm-hmm. against different tradition, slightly mm-hmm. different style that fits some other orchestra better than ours and vice versa, fits our orchestra more than another. That mm-hmm. also does happen. Well, that's probably why, you know, the orchestra is so respected. You know, it's so fine-tuned. You guys know what you're looking for, right? It's right down to fine detail. And yeah, you might have somebody that would fit better in LA, for example, or... Uh, San Francisco. I, I, I wouldn't know what yep. those differences are, but it's, you guys yeah, know what they it's are. It's a certain style of playing that, you know, certain orchestra prefer. Again, mm-hmm. it's a subjective thing. Very subjective. So that's how it goes. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. What else can you tell us about the Philharmonic? What do we need to know that we don't know hmm. that would surprise us? Surprise, huh? Yeah. I have to think. Yeah, well, I think the, you know, the fact that you... Yeah, you were a big Bon Jovi fan and the Soviet Union would be <laughs> surprising. <laughs> I know we're New Yorkers and I know the New York Philharmonic appears as tough. And they're a great call, very friendly. And I love coming to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun. I feel welcome. I feel safe. I feel I love making music with these people, you know, on mm-hmm. stage. And it's a family. It's interesting because sometimes we can exchange looks across the stage and you know how big that stage is and yeah basically just talk with our eyes you know in the middle of the concert and Mm -hmm. 
we'll have a mutual understanding of what's going on, you know, or what we're trying to convey in yeah. a conversation, all while playing, you know. So, yeah. um, some great inside jokes sometimes are going on, you know. Oh, I can imagine. Well, the way I saw it when I saw you guys um, last week was really cool because I'm sitting behind the stage. That's and I, yeah, I could see a lot of these interactions and whispers and everything, you know, because, yeah, you guys, you're on the job and you're with colleagues. You're basically at the office. Oh, because you probably saw a show. So somebody was whispering. Usually nobody talks on stage because, you know, when we're playing. Well, like, during, <laughs> during the, uh, the changeovers. Oh, during like the changeovers, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Then that's for sure. So you were going to talk about North Korea, right? You wanted to. Talk yeah, about absolutely. That's Absolutely. So that's something different that the yeah. Philharmonic has done. Now, I, I assume this is not normal. I, this is not no. typical of a U.S. orchestra. <laughs> Apparently, when that invitation came by fax, the management thought it was a joke and threw it out. And then some months later, another fax came with the invitation to come to Pyongyang. And then they're like, OK, is this for real? So I think there were some politicians involved and some officials and it kind of got wheels in motion many meetings people were afraid to go they weren't sure how to approach things and we had to be sure that we would be absolutely safe so I remember these long preparations and long discussions and many orchestra meetings trying to figure out how to proceed about it safely but we went and we came back in one piece it was kind of a bizarre experience <laughs> somebody who, who could see through many things that were happening there. For example, they gave everyone a translator called mm -hmm. Minor. Uh -huh. You know, and uh, <laughs> by the time my translator asked me what my address and date of birth was in the US, <laughs> I was trying to run away from him because I knew that this was, you know, the local whatever, you know, KGB guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they took cell phones away. That would be scary. Yep. Couldn't contact so, the outside world. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that. And the city reminded me, I mean, there was some beautiful, you know, Asian architecture, but also the city reminded me of Moscow, mm -hmm. 1950s that I never knew. Mm. And the scary thing is we would go into the buildings, you know, there would be presentations. They staged beautiful ballet. Mm -hmm. Of course, all of the communist, you know, undertones, you know, I won't go into details. There were some funny moments there. They managed to offend some people. But anyway, <laughs> um, the interesting thing is that those buildings look like they've been never used before. They look brand new, even mm. though they look like they were built in the 50s, 60s. Wow. That's kind of creepy, you know? That is surreal. One thing that I want to mention also is that when we finished playing, you know, we I saw the audience's faces kind of slowly transforming as we played on mm -hmm. and then as we finished they kept clapping so the orchestra came back on and suddenly uh -huh. the audience members started waving to us we were just mm -hmm. standing on stage waving to them uh -huh. my korean colleagues were bowling their eyes out crying we were all crying oh my god that was an emotional moment and people were saying you know oh i have an aunt i have relatives you know i don't know where they are you know i've heard of them but they're supposed to be in this country somewhere, but we don't know, you know, because they got separated when the country got split up. It was a crazy experience. The one tour that stuck with me, of course, was the North Korea. I'm still kind of in disbelief at this point, looking back that we actually went there, that we actually played concerts there. And the fact that for those few minutes, there was a connection between the stage and the audience. And that just, that brought tears to my eyes for months, literally after that tour. All right, kind of a heavy note to end on, but an important one. And the last clip comes from a video on the New York Philharmonic's YouTube channel, the On The Cover series, which features Q and A's with some of their musicians. And you can check that out. Also, check out WQXR.org, which you can listen to from anywhere in the world, thanks to streaming. Special thanks to Matt Abramovitz, formerly of WQXR, for instigating our first foray into classical music. I have a feeling it won't be the last. 
Thank you, Joe Denenzone, for uh, reconnecting me with the great Yulia Ziskel. And, of course, extra special thanks to Yulia for coming on and being such a great guest. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media. Music composed and performed by yours truly, Alex Skolnick, unless otherwise indicated the track you're hearing now with Alex Skolnick Trio, Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Pack on the bass. And finally, a huge thank you to all of you for listening and extra special thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Skolnick. And if so inclined, please hit subscribe if you have not done so. Ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated, or just tell a friend if you like what you're hearing. We have much more content to come, and we don't want you to miss an episode. So thank you once again, take care, and be safe. See you on the next episode. Osiris. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.